So, we're coming to the end of our four-week series on Moses. And we've heard quite a lot of new things, I think, from this story of this incredible leader. Um, three of the talks on this series have been done by Christian, which is pretty incredible. Um, hard work to deliver three talks um, in a row. So um, thanks to Christian for, um, for putting the time into those. So what have we learned from this story of Moses so far? Well, well, for one thing, we've learned that Christian dislikes it when you call it the story of the burning bush, because technically it isn't burning. Uh, we found out in the first week that Moses was a leader that God chose in the most unlikely of circumstances, that God brought Moses out of um, a basket in the water, that God is in control even when we least expect it. And then we found out in the story of the non-burning bush that Moses was revealed for who he really was when he came next to the holiness of God. We understand who we are better when we understand who God is. And we found out in the third talk that God is a great provider, that God is just, and that God sent his son to die so that we don't have to. And we've also learned a lot of things about our church family here, I think. For those of you who missed Christian's second talk, I don't know how you could have missed the backlash that came from his talk. Christian imparted a piece of wisdom which I think will stick with us all for quite a long time, which was, um, if you're a particularly good-looking man like himself, he rated himself about 7 out of 10, and I think I would have to agree with that. Um, if, you're, if you're a good-looking man like Christian, uh, Christian told us the best way to get ahead in photographs is to stand next to someone who's about a 5. So we've learned quite a lot about our church family, so I'm sorry, Rosie. <laughs> It's not looking good for you. Um, and we've also, who else have we found out about? Holly, sadly, five out of ten. Anybody else? Miriam, five out of ten, apparently. Who else? Freya, sorry Freya. Uh, but we have learned one useful piece of information, which is that Christian wouldn't dare sit na- next to Andy Faulkner in the photo. <laughs> so... A lot of deep, insightful knowledge. I hope that you also remember the great truths that Christian imparted to us, as well as uh, the funny bits. So I've got the job of wrapping up this story this afternoon. And there's a lot of things we could have talked about in the story of Moses. Um, But we're going to hear just one of the other stories that we see um, about Moses in Exodus now. So Lizzie and Fran are going to come and do us our reading. And if you want to follow it in your Bibles, it's... Exodus 34, from um, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him. And he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him. And he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant, 
Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So, how do we get to this point? Where does this come in our story? So we began um, our story about five weeks ago with an abandoned child left in a river. This was someone that God had a greater purpose for. Um, All of the Moses story will be in Lego behind you, so if we get the giggles out at the beginning, that will be great. So Moses' name literally means to draw out of the water. And we see, as with a lot of people in the Bible, names have a greater significance than we first think. And we see that actually Moses was one that would draw his people out of the water into the promised land. We also hear the story of the holy encounter with God through the non-burning bush. God's promise to rescue his people. We hear the story of God's justice, of the devastation of the plagues that were sent on Egypt. We heard the horrific story of children sentenced to death, but God setting his people apart, literally passing over the Israelites. And we saw that that would have a great significance for the Israelites. For many years, they would reenact this scene um, that, that we hear in Exodus. And God kept his promise to Moses. His people were set free from the captivity of the Egyptians. So this all comes to a climax in chapter 14 of Exodus. And there's this epic scene of God parting the sea so that his people can escape from Egypt. Through this man that was literally drawn out of the water, we see thousands of Israelites literally drawn through the water out of captivity and into the promised land. It's quite an amazing image. But the conclusion of this story doesn't quite go as you would like it to. The rest of Exodus feels a little bit like a very badly edited Hollywood film. This feels like it should be the climax of the story. God rescues his people. The waters are parted. And you think five minutes later the credits will roll up and everybody will be happy. But it doesn't quite go like that for the Israelites. It takes them 40 years to reach the land that God had promised to them. 40 years of walking around the desert, doubting, moaning, abandoning God, worshipping false idols, going around in circles. This is not a straightforward um, story. And actually we could spend many, many weeks talking about these stories of Moses and the Israelites. Um, And we could probably carry on doing this for another two years and still have more to say about Moses. So I apologise if we haven't talked about everything that we could talk about in these stories. And through this time, through this story that we've seen from the beginning up until this passage that we've just had read to us, there's a kind of increase in God's relationship with God's encounter with his people through Moses. So we see, first of all, that God encounters Moses through the bush on fire. Then we see in chapter 19 that God descends on his people in a cloud of smoke. And God's presence has all kinds of stipulations um, and exclusions on it. So God tells his people they have to wash their clothes really well. They have to abstain from having sex. They have to follow all sorts of commands before they can be 
at the stage in which he will encounter them, that he, they can encounter his presence. And then we see in chapter 19 and chapter 20 that Moses has another encounter with God in which he receives uh, the Ten Commandments. He receives one of um, the first sets of religious ethics that we see anywhere in the world. God is engaging with his people. He's, first of all, he's drawn them out of literal slavery from the Egyptians. And now he's drawing them out of the slavery of their own sin. He's engaging them in the practice of the law. He's encountering them and they're experiencing his presence, at least to some extent. And then we hear this story a little bit later than the Ten Commandments in chapter 34. Um, the presence of God coming upon Moses and God meeting Moses. And actually, God's presence is so powerful and so overwhelming um, that when Moses comes down from the mountain, we're told, the Israelites can literally see the presence of God shining on his face. After Moses had been talking with God, he'd come down from the mountain, he would give the laws and the commandments that God had given to him, to the Israelites, and then he would cover his face with a veil so people wouldn't notice that actually God's presence faded from his face. Like, like any good suntanner will tell you, you've got to keep topping up your tan, or any good fake tanner for that matter. Otherwise, if you don't keep topping it up, it fades away, right? So here's one solution from Moses for you. If you want people to think that you've got an amazing tan, go away to Dubai for a couple of weeks, then come back, let everyone see how brown you are, and then just put a veil over your face. It's essentially what Moses does, right? So, I don't know about you, but I hear these stories. I hear this story of Moses and the Israelites of burning bushes, of God's presence coming in clouds of smoke, of seas being parted, of Moses talking face to face with God. And my first thought is, these people had it good, right? These people were living in the good days when God did stuff, when they saw miracles, when God engaged with them. All the cool stuff was done in the past, right? And we get it written down and we read it and then we hear talks at the front and then we engage with it. That's kind of how it feels like Christianity goes. So, just to, to get us loosening up to thinking about that. Um, I've got a quick table talk for you. So you've got two minutes and I want you to tell me what was better in the good old days. Not just in the Bible, but... What did you, maybe it's the yo-yo, maybe it's the um, black and white TV, maybe you really like black and white films. What was better in the good old days? You've got a minute. Okay, so what was better in the good old days? 10p Freddos? Anybody say 10p Freddos? 5p Freddos? Wow. Anything else? What was better in the good old days? Penny sweets. Children's TV? Penny sweets. Penny sweets? Or half penny sweets, Christine, maybe? Oh. <laughs> Anything else? That's it. Freddo's. <laughs> penny sweets. You guys have got a rich cultural heritage behind you. Okay, so, I reckon every culture has this feeling about the culture, the generation that came before them. It was much better when I was a lad. 
I, you hear grandparents, you hear older people saying that all the time. And I reckon probably when I'm 75, I'll probably say something similar. Oh, it was much better when I was a lad. We didn't have these hover cars, we had just ordinary cars, and it was much better. <laughs> and actually, it's very easy to do this about God, about Christianity as well. It's easy to look at a past time when God spoke face-to-face with Moses and think those were the good days, those were the days when everything was clear and obvious and straightforward. When Jesus did miracles in front of everybody, those were the days that if I'd been there, I wouldn't have doubted, I would have followed. That's the most easy thing to do. But let me tell you, categorically, that's not true. It's not true that those were the better days, not just because you probably wouldn't have enjoyed wandering around the desert for weeks and months and years on end with only bread to eat. Not just because there wasn't any medication or clean sanitation. There's something much deeper than this that Paul tells us about in 2 Corinthians. So we're going to have our second reading now. So go, take it away. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there's a lot lot in this passage, and especially if you go to the beginning of the chapter, there's a lot of really in-depth, really interesting theology. I find this an incredibly powerful passage to study, to meditate, to read over. So can I just urge you, before we say anything else, to go away and do that this week. So in your cell group, um, with your housemates, with the people you live with, with your family, by yourself, spend time with this passage and let, let each of the verses and each of the words and each of the verses really speak into your heart because it's an incredibly powerful passage that we're not going to get to the bottom of today. But essentially, Paul puts us straight here. If you were thinking that those were the good old days, those were the days when God's glory was revealed in fullness, you're wrong. Because these are the days when God's glory is revealed. So what does it mean? What, what can we get out of this passage? 
But the first thing that I want to focus on is that God's plan has always been from the beginning of creation until now to restore his image in us. So right at the beginning of the Bible, we hear that man is made in the image of God. God creates a being which reflects him, which is like him, and which is who is in relationship with him. So we see Adam and Eve in the close relationship with God at the beginning of creation. But then we also see the results of that relationship being broken. And part of that is that the image of God that was reflected in Adam in the first creation is now broken, it's now distorted. And I think, from my experience, I know that this is true. In humanity, we see incredible beauty, we see incredible mercy and justice, we see the qualities of God displayed on a daily basis. You hear stories of incredible compassion and love, even if these aren't always reported in the media. Human beings have a capacity for great and profound good. And not just moral good. You you only need to look at beautiful pieces of art, beautiful pieces of music. And to me, that speaks of the image of God in us. That reflection of a perfect creator that made us in his image. But we also see the brokenness of that image every single day. Not just the horror stories in the news of murder and crime and injustice, but in our own lives, if you're anything like me, I see that I'm a broken person. I get angry far too quickly. I'm pretty lazy. I'm pretty selfish. I don't reflect the image of God as perfectly as I could. In fact, I'm very far away from reflecting the image of God. And so when you hear the Ten Commandments, when you hear the Law of Moses, which is written in these first few books of the Bible... It's, it's really easy to think that God is just some kind of strict schoolmaster that says these are the things that you can't do, these are the things that you can do. But actually, if you look closely, you see that actually the law of Moses, the old covenant, is about the image of God. So you hear God say in Leviticus, For I am Yahweh, your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. You must not defile yourselves by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground. For I am Yahweh who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. So you must be holy because I am holy. And this little sentence you see repeated throughout the Old Testament. And you see repeated by Jesus when he comes. You are to be holy because God is holy. You are to be merciful because God is merciful. It's all about reflection. It's all about regaining the image that God put in us from creation. The aim is that one day we will be fully like him, as we heard in that passage that the girls read to us. So people like them, the people that Moses was engaging with, were people just like us. They were beautiful people created in the image of God, but they were also far from God. The image was broken and distorted in them. And we see a kind, of, um, a kind of response to that. We see God breaking through that brokenness through Moses. So Moses is sent to be someone who leads his people. And as we saw in this passage from Exodus, although God, God aims at restoring the relationship with humanity, there's a, there's a distance between God and humanity. Moses comes down from the mountain 
And people see the presence of God through staring into the face of Moses. There is no direct contact to God for the Israelites. Moses is their go-to. Moses stands in the gap between God and humanity. The closest they get is a reflection of God's image. And so the way to restore the image of God for the Israelites is to live the law that Moses lays down. But as we've seen in this series, God is very serious about holiness. He's very serious that we live in holiness. And actually Moses himself never reaches the promised land. You see in Deuteronomy 32 that God says to Moses that he is going to die. This man that has been through so much, that has seen the plagues of Egypt, that has parted the Red Sea, that's led his people for, um, for years and years through the desert, this man will never see the promised land. And the reason that God gives is because he did not uphold the holiness of God. He didn't keep his faith in God. Not even Moses, the one chosen to stand in between God and humanity, was up to the job of doing that. And Moses came down from the mountain and he covered, literally covered his face with a veil because he knew that the glory of God would fade from him. He knew that his suntan was going to go. And Paul tells us straight in this passage, whenever we live under the old covenant, whenever we try and live this law of Moses, the veil covers our hearts. Whenever we try and do it ourselves, whenever we say that we can restore the image of God by just trying a little bit harder, by just being a little bit nicer, by just following the laws as closely as we can, whenever we live in that old way of thinking, there's a veil over our hearts, there's a veil over our faces. The glory of God will fade because we can't do it. It's impossible. But this is, this is the key. This is why those weren't the good old days, right? Listen to what Paul says again. From verse 16. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So God is still in, this, still in the business of transforming us into his image. He was doing it with Moses. He was doing it at creation. He's doing it now. He wants us to reflect his glory, to come into his image again. And you see in this verse that it's not going to be something that's completed. We are being transformed. The verb is still continuous, right? We are constantly being transformed. And we shouldn't expect that this will be a process which is finished in our lives. Eventually, we look forward to a day when we will be like him, it says in 1 John. Eventually, we will be made full again. The image will be restored again, and we will be whole. We will be like Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to. But the process of living today is a process of entering into that transformation. So where Moses was a mediator between God and man, the glory was always going to fail. But Paul tells us here in this passage that Jesus 
is the person that removes the veil from us. Because of Jesus, the glory doesn't fade. There's no need for a veil. In Christ, we have the perfect mediator between God and man. We are in the same position as Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. We can come into the presence of God. And what's more, we come through Christ, whose glory will never fade. So the truth is that you don't have to go through Moses to see God, to be like God. You don't need me or Christian or Gav. You don't need the Pope. You don't need the Archbishop of Canterbury. You don't even need Tim Keller to come into the presence of God. You are made to live in the presence and glory of God. You are made to live in relationship with him and to engage in this process of being more like him. But if you're anything like me, you daily choose to ignore this. I daily choose to ignore this. We think that God is interested in someone else and not in us. So let me tell you, here's the truth about you, about every single person in this room. You are an incredible, precious person. You are made in the image of a beautiful, loving God. But that image in you is broken. So whilst you're capable of great goodness, great love, great mercy, you're also capable of selfishness, of greed and destruction. If I'm honest, the truth is, in my life, the reason that I'm not changed to be more like Jesus is because I don't give God the time to do it. It's because that I know changing is more difficult than not changing. Surrendering to God is more difficult than resisting. Every day we see that this image is broken. So I'm just going to end by asking you a really simple question. We could spend ages unpacking how practically we do this in our lives. But I think it's a little bit more simple than that, actually. And I think... Probably you know the truth, you know the answer to this question, whether you, you dare to be honest with yourself or not. Are you letting God change you more into his image? Are you daily allowing God to restore his image in you? I reckon that could be one of the most important questions you ask yourself in your entire life. So the question isn't, are you trying to be a better person? Are you trying really hard at praying and reciting whole chapters of the Bible? Are you trying really hard to evangelise as many people as possible? How many possessions have you sold to help the poor this week? And we get so bogged down in trying to do it all ourselves, trying to live the law of Moses, essentially. Standing in this gap between God and man and saying, I can restore the image, I can be good, I can do it. But when we do this, we put a veil over ourselves. The glory will fade. So the question is a simple one. Are you letting God restore his image in you? Do you resist what God is saying to you? And this is the same question, whether you became a Christian yesterday, whether you've been a Christian for years and years and you're getting bored of it, whether you're not really sure if you're a Christian anymore, whether you're not even sure if you were a Christian in the first place. It's the same question whether you're 11 years old, 65 years old, or however many years in between, also below and above. <laughs> whether you're a student, 
whether you're a vicar, whether you're a teacher, whether you're unemployed, whether you work for the church, whether you fix the railway lines, Johnny Wimbles, everybody. <laughs> whether you look after children, whether you feel far from God, whether you feel close to God, whether you're finding being a Christian an absolute joy or an absolute chore. Our job is to be more like Christ. Are you letting God make you more like Christ? You know what? We live in an incredible time. It's easy to forget that. We live in a time when we can approach God with confidence and boldness and know that no matter how many times we've resisted him, no matter how many times we've held back from him, no matter what we've done, we can approach God like Moses. Because of Jesus, there's nothing we can do to earn the favour of God. So are you letting God change you into his image? I'm just going to pray for you, and then Christian's going to come up and help us to think about how we might respond to this. So Lord Jesus, gentle, gentle and wonderful God, my Father, truly awesome, an ever-present Holy Spirit. In my grief, be with me and change my heart. In my anger, be with me and change my heart. In my pain, be with me and change my heart. In my doubt, be with me and change my heart. In my wrongful passions, be with me and change my heart. I am sorry for all my dark emotions, so change me into your likeness. Change me into your likeness, so that I may walk in your joy. Change me into your likeness, so that I may walk in your peace. Change me into your likeness, so that I may walk in your serenity. Change me into your likeness so that I may walk in your certainty. Change me into your likeness so that I may walk in your righteousness and holiness. All these I humbly pray in the name of the most blessed Lord Jesus Christ, my mighty God and Father, and my ever-present Holy Spirit, upon whom I can rely. Amen.